All right, all right, all right. Shall we begin? So, morning, everybody. Uh, I know you see me up here again. Normally, we rotate. Jameson still is COVID positive last Friday, so or this Friday, he told me. So, he's doing fine. He just doesn't want to get any of us sick. So, bless his soul. Uh, so, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, Father God, we're just so thankful that we can come again this day, your day, the Lord's day, as a people, as a body, Lord. Lord, I just ask us that you just calm our minds and hearts, Lord. It can be very easy to bring a lot of the things that have happened this week into your house, Lord. And there's nothing wrong with that, Lord, if we let it go. Uh, but, Father, many times these things want to eat at us and, and divert our attention as you are trying to feed us and nourish us in your word through the studies on your day. So just be with us, Lord. Calm our hearts and spirits and, and grant us wisdom and insight so that we can live more and more in line with your scripture so that your name may be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we've been doing how to grow. We're on week 10. Um, let's just kind of do a review of all the areas we've done so far. We've talked about that the idea that worship is all-encompassing. Your whole life is worship. It's not just something you do on Sunday. It's how you conduct yourself day in, day out, thought, word, and deed. We talked about one of the most important spiritual disciplines is reading your word, engaging the word of God. We talked about that sometimes we can read consistently, but we don't dig deep enough to draw application, or more importantly, we don't conclude our reading or studies with the worship of God. Um, we talked about prayer and the absolute need of prayer as prayer is simply admitting that we are creation, God is creator, and he has made a lifeline, if we can call it that way, to help us in all things. We talked about sin confession and sin fighting, that your flesh wants to keep sin uh, to yourself. Sin wants to let you hide it and never bring it out. But we know in scripture that when we bring these things to the light, that's where victory can happen. We talked about fasting. Um, how fasting is a tool that's used uh, in and out of the Old and New Testament. Uh, oftentimes it's a response to, to sin, and it's a like a heart of repentance. But many times it can be a, ple a pleading to the Lord that his will be done, that he would rescue his people. And we talked about evangelism. We talked about how can we who have been saved by such a, a great God and a great gospel, how can we keep this to ourselves? We talked about how the great uh, commission is the going out and making disciples of all nations. So we need to be a people who are quick to speak much about Jesus Christ. The biggest need of all humanity is not more money, it's not more friends, it's to be made reconciled with the Holy Lord. And the only way they can do that is through Christ. And then we talked about serving last week, um, that God has made us a body of believers, uh, that we are not meant to walk this life lone wolf, as it were, and we all have gifts to serve. Some may seemingly sh shine more than others, but all are absolutely necessary. And we talked about the idea that many times we don't serve for reasons such as fear, um, uncertainty, and maybe putting some of God's commands over others and not realizing that God desires you to follow all the things he calls you to do. And it's not a burden because the Lord is with you. Today, we're going to talk about stewardship. 
So real quick, I just want to define spiritual disciplines for you one more time. Um, Spiritual disciplines are practices that God has called us to implement that we may grow in righteousness, trust, and dependence upon him and love for his people. And these, the ones that I mentioned are spiritual disciplines. As you know, our church is trying to grow more and more in the making of disciples happening day in, day out in the, in the body, in this life of this church. That's why we have D groups, right? So sometimes we can come to discipleship like, well, what do we do? Older believers are like, how do I do it? I've never been discipled. Younger believers are like, what am I going to expect? How does discipleship work? But it's really these areas of life. That's all it is. I mean, in one sense, it's simple that way, right? Like, well, that's it. But in another sense, those are things you will do for the rest of your life and continue to grow. But it's good to have a set of, of, of qualifications for discipleship because that allows you to walk the path that God wants you to walk. Uh, much of my early Christian life, I had no idea what discipleship was. Um, so I'm happy that we're able to go through it as a church uh, so that you guys can hopefully do much better than I did. Um, just a reminder, I know... We're talking a lot about I'm commanding you to do things. I'm exhorting you to stop doing some things at, and do other things. But this is not to get you to necessarily feel guilty. The point of this class is that we would take what God says seriously, right? Uh, we don't get to pick and choose the areas of God's word that we like more than others. I mean, we live that way often, but we ought not be that way. Um, uh, the, 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 the foundation of everything is that Jesus saves and in that, there is now a new relationship with God. That's one thing to always remember. God is not just your Savior. He is your Lord. He is Lord of all people, but we are now a people who desire his Lordship. We are now a people who desire to obey his commands. And so that's what this class is about. Sanctification is just the conforming into the image of the Son. And these are the tools and the means that the Bible has given us that God uses for us to do that. Okay, so... Um, like I said earlier, these disciplines help us in the sanctification process. They help us strive toward holiness as we strive to be like Christ. So now we're going to transition to stewardship. Um, what is stewardship? Uh, the definition I'd like to give you is the taking responsibility for the things the Lord has entrusted to us. It's being faithful with them. A steward is simply a person who manages someone else's stuff, someone who takes care of property, someone who takes care of someone's family, whatever the case may be. Someone has put you in charge of their things, and you are stewarding it. As the creator-creation relationship, everything that you and I have is a stewarded gift or, or stewarded responsibility. I guess there's only one thing that belongs to us, and that's probably sin. Everything else is the Lord. So your intelligence, your talents, your gifts, uh, your spouse, your children, your work, the money in your bank account, all these things are the Lord's. It's really helpful to remember that because you would treat it, your interaction with a lot of the things that God has called you to steward would probably be different if you remembered, wait a second, one, it's not mine, and two, I'm going to give it back, right? Oftentimes the problem in our life is we forget that it's not, it's his, and we think it's ours. And that's when a lot of times the issue comes about. Now, there are, I mean, like I said, God, you stew, everything you have 
is something to, that God has called you to steward. But we, we're going to emphasize today the stewardship of money. Um, and the reason is, I believe that getting this area right or wrong has a, like a cascading effect in a lot of other areas. Okay, um, So that's why we're going to focus on um, money. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that money, just like speech, is a window into what we really worship. What's our real allegiance? Where's our allegiance lay, should I say? We read in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money is a means to procure that which you believe is your treasure, okay? Remember, it's not money's the root of many evils, but the love of money. And oftentimes you love money because of what it can get you. And many times at the end goal of money in many people's lives, it's almost never God. It's always something about me, myself, and I. What do we treasure? One of the ways that we can tell, like in the verse, is to look at our bank accounts, to look at our credit card statements. What are we doing with our money? Let's spend a few minutes reminding ourselves what Scripture says about being a good steward of our finances. So, first point, God owns our money. And Haggai 2.8 says the following, The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. In our culture, hearing these words can be pretty offensive. We live in a country that prides itself on being made up of hardworking, pick-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps kind of people. I worked my tail off for the money I make is not an uncommon response. But there is an element of truth to that response. Many of us do work painstakingly hard for our paychecks. We put in long hours to try to get ahead, as it were. If we didn't do the work, we wouldn't have the money that we have. But what I love about the Bible is that it reveals to us what is going on in an ultimate sense. It reveals the deep truths, the biggest picture. And with respect to our money, the deepest truth, the, the biggest picture, is that the source of everything we make belongs to a sovereign God. We can trace everything that we have ultimately back to his hands. We are only steward of the resources God has given us, not the owners. That means that the primary determination of how we use our money shouldn't be our own personal whimsy or our desires, but God's word. Our question should not be, how much of my money do I give God? But rather, how much of God's money should I keep? For myself. Number two, giving is an act of worship. Paul writes in Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul uses the language of sacrifices, of burnt offerings of old covenant temple offerings and talking about giving. Those who have given themselves to the Lord are liberal with their giving, even in hard times. 
we'll round out this idea a little bit later, but what exactly makes the giving worshipful? Point three, giving reflects faith in God's provision. Giving is a distinct indication of how much we trust God to provide for our needs. Consider the widow from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12. This is how it reads. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What did the widow's gift reveal about her? It revealed that she trusted in God's provision. Unlike the rich folks, her offering was a major sacrifice, which, in a stunning way, showed her faith in God. When we give, when we send our money on to the gospel work in our local congregation or others, it is like we are presenting our passport from a heavenly kingdom, showing that our hope is not ultimately in this world or its riches, but in the God of the universe. Now, one of the main reasons I think we don't give is that we fear what lies ahead in our lives. We don't know what's coming down the road, so we are tempted to hoard as much as we can. And by doing that, we are essentially saying that our security is in our money and not the Lord. But there's a problem with that. Remember what Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, where your heart will be also. Money cannot buy security, and it cannot buy peace. And we mean this in the ultimate sense, right? But God sent his son to purchase for you the ultimate eternal security through his death on the cross and his resurrection. The kingdom of that God, a God who happens to be sovereign over the future and everything that we fear, the kingdom of God is an infinitely better investment than the kingdom of this world. Uh, there's a popular quote that some of us know. Uh, it says, see if I can remember it. Um, it says, he, I think this is just paraphrasing. He is no fool who gives up what he will ultimately eventually lose to gain that which he will never lose, right? The things of this earth are fading. You have them in hands that are going, they're going to disappear. But why not give those things, as Jesus says, for treasure that will not fade and will not destroy? Now, I just want to make a comment because some of us might be, so what are you telling me, Wally, that I'm supposed to give 90% of my paycheck, and if I don't do that, I'm not faithful? Let's not take this study out of context, right? There's principles of wisdom, and it's wise to save in the store. What I'm concerned about is oftentimes the heart of the matter. Does that make sense? Because there are people who save well, and it honors the Lord. Because if you look into their heart, they're using their money, they're stewarding it well, and they are giving and contributing to the God, and we'll see this later, with a joyful heart. And there are others who will give exact, save exactly the same much, but they are people who are very skittish. They are very people who are very anxious. They don't save trusting in the Lord, and they don't give trusting in the Lord. They give and save for ulterior motives or reasons. Does that make sense? So we're talking more about that. But 
Maybe this is for some of you. Maybe you do give in your excess, and thus it feels like nothing to you. That's a dangerous heart to have, and we'll go further to see why that is. Uh, Point four, our giving should be sacrificial and generous. We see this kind of sacrificial giving typified in the book of 2 Corinthians when Paul writes of the Macedonian Christians. He writes in 2 Corinthians 8, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. Like the widow mentioned in that previous passage, these Macedonian Christians were not rich, but they gave generously and sacrificially. Giving isn't sacrificial unless it's a sacrifice. Does your giving cause you to make different choices about how you live? Sacrifice comes with a cost. It causes us to forego or delay things we want for the sake of giving it to God's kingdom, which should be what we most want. For giving to be sacrificial, in one real sense, it needs to hit home. It needs to affect the way we live, the decisions we make. It will most likely be inconvenient. It might mean going without something we really, really want, or putting off doing something we've always wanted to do. But friends, when we consider what our God has done for us in Christ, the need of people in our church, and the need for the gospel around the world, will we really be sorry on that last day that we gave up a little comfort for the sake of God's kingdom? I don't think you believe that. I definitely don't believe that. If anything, I think we'll always be wishing that we had given more. We should look at our money through the lens of eternal consequences. Point five, giving reflects spiritual trustworthiness. Consider for a moment the following passage in Luke 16. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Our use of money is a primary way of evaluating our relationship with Christ. What do our bank statements and credit card statements say about us? They can say as much about us as just about anything else. Remember, where your treasure is, your heart is also. If a biographer or historian were to get access to our records after death, what conclusions would they draw about what mattered to us? What would they reveal about our walk with Christ? Do you remember Zacchaeus? who gave half his money to the poor and repaid everyone he had wronged four times over. Then remember the rich young ruler who had the, just the thought of parting with his riches. The Bible says he went away sad. One made money his God and the other made money his servant. 
One held money with a closed tight fist. The other opened his hand out of love for God. Point six. Christian giving is done out of love, not legalism. Our giving is a response to a God who has given us everything we need in Christ. We don't give in an attempt to buy God's love as if God were some sort of border agent we were trying to bribe to get into the promised land. No, we give because God has first loved us. 2 Corinthians 8 is a good reminder here. It says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. God has made us rich in Christ. He has secured for us eternal life in the mansions of the blessed. In light of this, we should give as an expression of our love for our Heavenly Father, whose generosity to us in Christ truly knows no end. Point seven. Christians give, Christian giving should be done cheerfully. God is concerned not only with the giving itself, but more than that, he's concerned with the heart behind it. It is very possible to give with the wrong motives, and we've talked about this often in this class, that you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, right? You can turn something that ought to honor God into something that does quite the opposite. Money usage is no different. We can be tempted to give, for instance, for tax purposes, without any sense of thankfulness to God. So I wonder what would happen in the U.S. if the IRS got rid of deductions for charitable donations. Would our giving change? God, however, is not concerned with the bottom line like the IRS. Remember, he owns everything anyway. No, he is concerned with our hearts. 1 Corinthians 13, right? That great poetic litany of verses about love. Did you know there's a line in there about giving? Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I have delivered up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. According to that verse, you can give everything away, but if the money isn't given from out of a heart that is full of love for God, then you actually gain nothing. That's one thing to think about our Christian life as well. God commands you to obey him, and he's right to do so. But don't get it twisted. If you do not have a joy and delight, undergirding that those obedience of commands you're only obeying halfway do you understand the good thing is that you might well you might say well Wally I can't make myself joyful <laughs> but in regeneration God gives all believers a taste of joy and delight in him and you and I think a lot of us have forgotten that and so we do a lot of things out of just practice or habit and we forget that God wants a joyful heart behind it this is what I always tell you, the idea that all of God's work for you are means to one great end, namely to glorify him. And to glorify him has very much attached to it that his people are enjoyed or they're enraptured or they delight in him as their greatest treasure. So not only do, should we think about the use of money that way, but your service to your wife 
or your children or in your work? Are you doing these things with joy because you want to make much of him? If you do not do that, you can do all the, the commands of God and you can know them all and you can follow them to a T externally, but none of it honors the Lord. Now, I will say this. There will be times, as it always is, that you, are, you know what the right thing to do is, but your heart is far from it. What do you do in that situation? Do you just not do the good thing because you're like, well, I don't have joy, so it would dishonor God? No, you prayerfully do the right thing all the while praying that God would bring the delight that there should be there, right? Acknowledge that you don't have the joy, but move forward say, Lord, I need you to give me delight in this. I don't feel like helping this brother or sister right now. It's hard. I don't want to do this, but I know it's the right thing to do. Lord, remind me of the love that you have given to me so that it can overflow to them. And we, do, we need to be doing this in every aspect of our life. God looks at the heart of what we do. Like, like, like we said here, he owns everything. <laughs> it's not like you somehow giving him stuff. He's like, oh, I, didn't ha- I wouldn't have had that if it wasn't for you. That's not how that works. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 gives us more insight into how God wants us to give. It says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, it shouldn't just be duty that drives you. Giving should be a delight. It should be more like giving an engagement ring to a fiancé, joyful, full of love, freely, than paying your utility bills. God would have had us enjoy the giving. Here's the question. When giving is something we're struggling to do cheerfully, what can we do to counter our heart's disposition? What are some things you guys might think we can do? Nothing. Got it. Okay, we'll just move on. (laughs) Now, obviously, what we just talked about, right? It always comes back to Christ, doesn't it? We may not do this directly, but we often treat Jesus Christ and his saving work as something that happened at one point in history, and we experienced it at one point in history, and that's the beginning, but we've moved forward. That's a problem, okay? Maybe a better way to see it is imagine a bike wheel, right? So you have the rubber on the outside, then you have the rim, and then you have the spokes, and the spokes all go to the hub, okay? It's more like your life was like this wheel, and at the center of your wheel was yourself, right? When Christ comes and saves you, he becomes the center. All those spokes are like the different aspects of your life. And notice that they must all come to Christ, okay? So sometimes it is helpful to say, okay, as a Christian, I have different priorities. That can be helpful, but it can be dangerous too because you make a list and you kind of think this way, okay, God's first. As long as I get him checked, I can move on. But it's better to think, I think, holistically that God is the center because that means whatever I do, is it leading to him? Am I considering what he says? Am I considering what he's done? Is it going to ultimately bring him glory, right? So remembering the gospel is not some pettiful thing that only young Christians do. Remember, in Revelation it says, what will we be singing new songs about? About the lamb who was slain and has risen again. Christ is always going to be the center of our minds and our hearts. It's not going to somehow change in the new heavens and earth. It's just going to be in the most, in glory, (laughs) 
what we see in just images and shadows, we will see face to face. Okay? So how do you fix your heart and joy no matter what the situation is you remember what Christ has done for you? Yes. So what you're, ta- <coughs> what you're talking about right now is your affection for Correct. Right? So I think one of the things we make the mistake of doing is thinking that our affections are, that our, our emotions are just things that they're just reactions. Agreed. Right? And that we can't cultivate those things. Yeah. Learn to teach ourselves to learn to love things that's right. we didn't love before. Yeah. So I think that might be so we always talk about in our D group our attitude or uh, I'm sorry, our conduct, our belief, and then our affection. Well it's it's a progression. That's right. The easiest thing to change is your conduct, the next thing to change is your beliefs, and then eventually your affections yeah. will change, but they can be changed over time. They're not yeah. just that's right. That's you can right. Learn to love giving. You can learn to love seeing. Uh, That's right. How your giving affects other people. That's right. It can happen over time, but you have to work. Yeah. And, and make, and, yeah. And, work, and go in that direction. That's exactly right. I, learn. It's like it's like when we say uh, like some things are an acquired taste. Yeah. But you get it by doing it. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. And in this case, one of the greatest differences I think is is, is a godsend is that all Christians start with a delight when they get saved. So it's not like you are completely foreign. It's just that in our finitude, finitude, you sometimes don't see, how does loving God make me love giving money? How does loving God help me bear with others? You You don't necessarily see that connection. And so you, in faith, you begin to, well, if the God who has saved me, who I love, tells me this is right and good, I may not experientially know that, but I love him, so let me step out in faith. And what you'll see is that they always connect. That's what's so wonderful about the Christian, one of the most wonderful things about the Christian walk, because it's the reality of how humanity is meant to live. Oftentimes, people think Christianity is, you really want to do this, but God calls you to do this, and so you're either going to be happy and disobey God or unhappy, but at least you're going to heaven. Huh? That's not how that works. <laughs> the greatest joy for the human being is to worship, namely to worship the one true God. So obedience and joy are, are parallel tracks. They do not go this way. The only time they venture across or you're tempted to think that is because there is a fleshly desire you have, an inordinate desire that is trying to get you to move away okay um continuing on um giving is an appropriate response to real needs as christians in the local church we are called to give regularly but also in response to specific needs as they arise the book of acts is flushed with examples of this we read in acts 2 how and all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Is there a more beautiful picture of Christian community in all of Scripture? This picture of a loving Christian congregation is exampled upon in Acts 4, where we read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each 
as any had need. We are called to take care of our families, and we are called on occasion to take care of our spiritual family when needs arise. We should keep our eyes open for specific needs that we might be able to meet, and we should be humble enough to open up to others about our own needs. If we're going through a tough time, it is a wonderful testimony to God to see those that were once at enmity with God and with one another loving each other selflessly by taking care of one another's needs. I, I said this kind of last week. I've been engaging my brother more and more with spiritual things. And one of his accusations against me is he says, you don't love me like you love those strangers at the church you go to. Why is it that you spend time with them all the time and you give them your money and resources? They're going to leave you, Wally. See, when things get hard, they're going to disappear. But I'm your family. And I told him, I was like, look, I think what you don't understand is that blood family is actually not the main definition of family. It was only ever to be a shadow of a greater family, and that is the spiritual family. From your perspective, I totally get it. Why would one who has no commonality in blood give up things for another, especially if it's sacrificial? And the answer is because there's something thicker than blood, and that is to be one in Christ. And so it, it, when, I, when I talked to him about that, it was really, I was really thankful to the Lord because it made sense when Scripture says, the way you love one another is the way they will see and glorify God because that is abnormal and strange. My brother can't believe that those people are actually giving just because, that they must be some sort of ulterior motive. This is only good, Wally, because things are at peace. Wait till things get ruffled up. They're going to be gone. And sometimes that does happen. But ultimately, we give because God has first given to us, and we give because we love one another. And when we are all in one accord like that, it is a beautiful, beautiful picture that I don't think anyone can explain without saying there must be a God. Yes, sir. A good, like, pithy way of putting it, uh, that, uh, what is it? The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water. Amen. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. What did he say? Say it again. <laughs> okay. Um, n number nine, giving should be planned and systematic, or the way we always say it in here, things should be intentional, yeah? This has been a theme throughout this core seminar, whether we're talking about reading God's word or fasting. We should be intentional about growing as Christians. We need to have a plan, and this certainly applies to giving. Paul makes a strong case for this in 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Notice he says, each one of you should do this. All who claim to be believers are expected to express their stewardship of God's money in this way, by giving in a planned and systematic way. We should give in good times and bad times. If we're working full-time or only part-time, we should give. Notice also, he says, in keeping with his prosperity or in keeping with his income. We don't have time to go too much into this, but our church believes or our church uses, often uses like 10% as a good starting point. Notice that we changed recently in our documents 
that instead of they used to have 10% as like kind of like a de facto rule, it now turned to giving cheerfully. But oftentimes I think Christians are taught that that's kind of like a good place to start, right? Um, however, 10% isn't the godly number, <laughs> okay? Um, it may be that those who give less are more faithful than those who give the 10 or more. Remember, it comes back to the heart. Um, the question we should ask is, is the giving sacrificial? Is it generous? It may well be that 10% is that number, but whether it's lower or higher, like we said, the heart is what's most important. Number 10, generous giving results in bountiful blessing. I want to make this very clear from the get-go. The prosperity gospel is a demonic distortion of this truth. Okay? We're not talking about this idea that's very common in prosperity teaching. The teaching that God's will is to make every Christian wealthy and healthy in this life is a false teaching. It's popular, but a false one. What makes it so abominable is that it's a twisting of what Scripture actually says that there is blessing in response to giving. There are many New Testament passages that indicate that some sort of unspecified earthly blessings are given to faithful stewards of God's resources. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. That's in Luke 6. This passage doesn't mean that we'll see fruit immediately when we give. It doesn't even mean that we'll see fruit this side of heaven. Giving a generous gift isn't like putting a coin in an earthly blessing machine. But it does mean that God pours out blessing over time and in ways we may never know or experience in this life. For example, maybe you being generous is actually the means God is using you to trust him more. It is a tremendous blessing to grow in the trust of God. Make no mistake, most of God's blessings for giving will come in the next life. But rest assured, they will come. By being good stewards, we are laying up treasures in heaven. As Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Another verse that comes to my mind is it says that in Jesus Christ, we have all spiritual blessings. Namely, that we have him. If you have the greatest and he's yours forevermore, it's very easy to be open-handed with the gifts, right? Because the gifts are exactly that, an auxiliary blessing. But the gifts meant to point to the giver, and we have him. Let's finish up by talking about stu- a little bit about stewardship and other areas. We talked about money specifically today because, like I had mentioned earlier, that oftentimes if you're good with your money, if you understand these principles, it's very easy to parallel those and other aspects of your life. But the reality is we are all different in that we all have different strengths and weaknesses. So some of us can be very strong when it comes to the financial side, but when it comes to the stewardship of another area, we're very poor. So I do want to talk about it uh, just a little bit. So I think this is on the back page. The areas we're going to talk about are time, your speech or your tongue, relationships, spiritual gifts, and your job, or if you're a student, um, you're studying for your education. Stewardship should be applied to all areas of our life. If we have been blessed with something or given a responsibility for something, we should always steward it with care. The list below is obviously not all-inclusive, 
but this is a good foundational place to start. Time. Do we use our time wisely? While rest is a good thing, allowing our body the opportunity to recover from a busy day or week, slothfulness or laziness is not. Are we efficient managers of our time? Do we prioritize our time well? So here are some questions you can ask. Oftentimes, we make reasons for not going to church services and activities. Some of those are legitimate. Many of them are not. The majority of them are because we're not willing to sacrifice what it would cost to go there. Thus, we're not using our time in the best way. Uh, so perhaps that's one place you can examine yourself. Are there, are there activities in the church where you can come together in unity with God's people that you kind of avoid because it would hurt a little bit? Remember, we're not talking about just sacrifice and time. We're talking about sac- or, and money. We're talking about sacrifice in all areas. But remember... A Christian, because of their love for God, will want to give up lesser pleasures for a greater pleasure, right? Oftentimes, I think that's how the flesh works in our life. The flesh cannot damn you because Christ has saved you, but the flesh will try to hinder your ability to serve and be served. It will try to hinder your ability to find that eternal peace that Christ has given us that we can experience now and forevermore. And one of the ways is to get you to say, ah, I can't go to that. That'd be a little hard. If you arrange a couple things and you sacrifice a little bit, there oftentimes is the ability to come together in God's people. What's another one that time can be a problem? Um, With parents and the idea of stewarding your kids in the word, that's often a very big one, isn't it? I just don't have time. We're doing everything else. I just don't have time to get in the Bible. I promise next week I'll do it, and then next week, and next week, and there's a whole perpetual, always next week, and you never get around to it. Uh, Let Pastor Rolo's daughters, their testimonies, be a testament of what happens when you're faithful. Both, Both of their testimonies, what did they say? We were in Bible time, and my dad said, do you think Rolo just taught them one time? He'd been doing it from the moment they were born whether they understood or not, in and out of season. Oftentimes we say, but I want my kids to be saved. But the question is, do you dedicate the time as if you believe God's going to move in his word? And oftentimes we don't. Second area, speech. Do we steward what we say? In the joking, maybe in criticism or even praise. Do we purposely speak above those we are talking to or do we strive to speak at the level of our audience? Oftentimes in evangelism, this can be an area that we have issues with, right? We forget what it means to be a dead man. (laughs) And so we look at them and we think, they're so dumb. Why don't they get it? It's because they're dead. (laughs) It's because they're dead. And such were some of you. We were all like that. And so oftentimes I've noticed that in speech, it can be very easy to speak at or to speak over those who are lost because you just can't understand why they don't get it, forgetting all the while that they are spiritually dead. And the faithful way that God calls us to speak to them is words seasoned with salt in grace, praying that God may grant them repentance. God grants repentance when we are faithful to sharing the word faithfully in the right heart, okay? How about speech with those around you? Anyone who lives in a house with a family member or your spouse understands that oftentimes we are the least careful with our tongue with those who are most close to us. Isn't that crazy? We'll be more 
proper with someone we bump into the street than the wife of 20 years. We need to be careful to not allow the excuse of, well, because we know each other, we get no. The Bible says that our words are meant to lift up, not to push down. Three, relationships. How do we manage our priorities with those God has placed in our lives? The energy, teaching, guiding, and listening. Do we mentor or disciple? Or do we allow other, and do we allow others to do that for us? Are we too proud to ask for discipleship from those we may believe are more mature in areas we desire or are convicted we need work in? Stewardship in relationships is not just one way, but is also tapping into those who can help us in numerous ways. So I think for us in the local church, often I think we're very, by God's grace, we emphasize the importance of marriage. We emphasize the importance of raising your children. But I think we're still deficient in, in, in raising up the importance of discipleship, whether older teaching younger or younger being willing and taking the initiative to be taught by the older. That is not just some, like, secondhand relationship. Think, think about this for a second. Imagine, imagine you're younger, maybe before you're married, before kids, and you have someone teach you what biblical marriage looks like what a biblical man and a biblical woman looks like. A person who, before you go into areas of danger, and you wouldn't know because you're ignorant, but they lead you through it biblically. They prepare you to be a husband or a wife. How many areas of your life of struggle and ultimately dishonor to the Lord would have been avoided? But that costs a lot of time and energy to pour into someone like that. It takes a lot of uh, humbleness to be willing to let someone have that kind of authority in your life. So just think about that. Are, are we emphasizing this part of our life? We may agree. We're like, yeah, discipleship is important. But are you living in it? Spiritual gifts. As we read in Romans 12 above. Oh, I haven't read it yet. I don't know where Romans 12 is. Uh, talents and gifts should be used. And we should steward them wisely in the church. Oftentimes what stops is like, I don't know what my gifts. I don't know what my talents are. That's okay. Just serve. Just serve. God will make it work. But don't think that he's going to, like, when you're sleeping, he's going to, like, etch it in your dreams or he's going to put it on your wall with the finger of God. It's go and serve because at least you know that the gifting will show itself later. Just be willing to serve. And then last, your job or, if you, like I said, if you're a student, your studies. Um, what would stewarding your job look like? The Bible says that we ought to work as if we work unto the Lord. Uh, would we be a timely worker, a diligent worker? Also, are you stewarding your job in a way that you're making sure it doesn't become your idol? How often it is to continually do extra hours and extra hours, and you think you have a, a good reason, but you're doing that at the expense or at the sacrifice of other responsibilities you have. Living here in Vegas, I think one of the biggest dangers is that because we're kind of a 24-7 city, many jobs, especially on the strip, will, it's just common, you're going to work the weekend. That's just how it's going to be. Some of you are in that situation. Some of you have been in there short times, some of you have been long times. But for those we know, if you can help it, don't put yourself in a situation that you lose your Sunday. Yes, the casino can pay a lot of money. And yes, a lot of godly men and women have retired there and used their money for the glory of God. But why play with fire when you don't have to? The casino is fighting with you to see who will you serve, right? And because they have a system of, 
of seniority, the chances of you getting the good shift is nil, almost nil. So I just encourage you, don't walk into jobs like that willingly. And if you're in there, please, please, if you can find a way out, find a way out. It's not worth, it's not worth sacrificing the unity in the church, the opportunity to hear God's word weekly for a paycheck. What about your study? If you're in school, school in one sense is your job. What about your personal studies? Are you properly putting into practice the things you're taught on Sundays and Wednesdays and from those who disciple you? How are you do you guys purposely try to act, or act on the things we teach you in Sunday school? Do you purposely, intentionally try to put into practice the things you learn on Sunday? Or are all these things just intellectual kick, and then you go home, and then it's gone. I think a lot of us are good at habitual reading of the Bible. The question is, are you in the habitual practice of making it apply in your life? Anybody can read. Do you understand that? Like, that's, that's not hard. We live in a first world country. Everyone reads. But do you read well? And do you take God's word seriously that it's meant to be lived, not just meant to be stored up here in your mind? So we could go further, but these are the areas uh, that I believe would be good. Um, I don't have much more. I'm just going to pray, and I'll let you guys go. Uh, Father, I just, I just, we just thank you, Lord, that you've given us the greatest treasure. That is that you've made us sons and daughters. You've made us right with you, Lord, that through Christ our sins have been paid, that through Christ we have the righteousness necessary to enter your presence and it be pleasing to you. Oh, Lord, we are not worthy of any of this. There's no way we could earn it, and you don't expect it, Lord, because it is a gift, thus it is grace. But, Father, remind us that you have not left us here because we need some sort of righteousness increasing in our life. You have left us here to do your will. And so, Lord, I just ask that we all examine our lives and our stewarding of everything that we have, and that you would allow at least one thing here to prick our hearts, Lord, so that we can repent, that we can put it off and put on those things which honor you. Oftentimes, Lord, I know it's the subtlety of the heart worship, that we do the right things externally, but our heart's far from it. So, Lord, please help us to, to, to reform our thinking in areas that perhaps we look right, but we don't feel right. Lord, we don't have the right emotions in it. Help us to be greater stewards of our money and our time and our, and our words and our relationships and our work, Lord, because you are our great hope and treasure. And these are things that we do because they make much of you, Lord. And please remind us, Lord, a lot of us may feel, well, look, this is impossible. I've been spending years doing it wrong. That's okay, because apart from Christ, all of it's for naught. But God has vested interest in us. He has, he has on his namesake saved us. And he has not saved us so that now we can work on our own, but he has saved us. He has given us the will, and he's given us the ability through his Son, through the Spirit, to accomplish that which is impossible with our flesh. We love you, Lord. And we just ask that you continue to make it clear that you are our great treasure so that our lives can reflect that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.